Why you, you looking at me like that for? What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Where's you, Sharon? Hold on, son. Try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. And welcome to a Slash Filmcast bonus episode about Moonlight. I'm Devendra Hardwar. My normal co-hosts, David Chen and Jeff Kanata, aren't here today. But I'm joined by Angie Han, editor at Slash Film. Angie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Cool. So, Angie, I know you're a big fan of Moonlight. And I really yes. wanted to talk about this movie um, before we got too far away from its premiere. I think it's um, opening up wider now. And it's doing really well, uh, which is surprising for a small-scale indie movie like this. And yeah, so I'm glad I got you. You've seen it how many times at this point? I have seen it three times. Okay. I saw it at TIFF, and then I saw it again with my friend just because we like, didn't <laughs> want to see it again. And then the third time, it was half because I wanted to see it again and half an excuse to check out the Alamo Draft House when it opened here. That's a good excuse. So when, mm-hmm. when was TIFF? Was that earlier this year? TIFF was in September, yeah. Okay. I okay. think it had already premiered at something else before that, like maybe Telluride or Venice or something. Mm-hmm. I don't think it did its world premiere at TIFF, but it was like right at the beginning of its festival. So yeah, you were there from the beginning, and uh, this movie does feel like a phenomenon, I think. Uh, I haven't seen, um, I think, an indie movie like this, especially one that's not about, um, you know, an indie movie set about Brooklyn hipsters or something. Uh, that's also right. been, I don't know, accepted so much. So that's kind of nice to see. And Moonlight is Barry Jenkins' film about a young black boy uh, growing up in Miami. And it shows us three stages of his life, um, him as a child, as a teenager, and as an adult, uh, all the while struggling with poverty, um, living in the projects, and also, you know, homo- homosexuality. He just doesn't know who he is. And it seems like the entire movie is an exploration of that. So I think to follow our typical review format, uh, let's talk about our general impressions of the movie. And uh, then we'll dive into spoilers. And I think a good thing, just for a movie like this... Um, we could just break it into three acts and the spoilers too. Uh, but first off, yeah, what do you think of this movie, Angie? And has your impression of it changed over time at all? It has. I mean, you can guess from the fact that I saw it three times mm-hmm. on purpose that I really liked it. But the thing is that the so before I saw it, there was you know already I wasn't among the first screening to see it or anything, so there was already a lot of hype when I saw it for the first time. Right, and then like right. after I walked out, I was like. I really liked it, but it wasn't a movie that I walked out being like, holy shit, this is going to be one of my favorites of the year. Like, I already know it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was it is one of those movies, though, that like, you know, I walked out being like, huh, that was really good. Okay, And then but then the more I sat with it, the more I thought about it, the more I talked about it, the more I heard other people talk about it. Mm -hmm. Just like the more and more it grew on me. And as of right now, I'd honestly say that this is my favorite movie of the year. Um so yeah, I mean, with the with the subsequent viewings too, like kind of knowing what what to expect and like knowing what little things to look out for and stuff, just made it an even richer experience. It's a movie that I feel like I could watch for a fourth time right now and love just as much again. Right. This it's a really quiet movie too, so I can understand. Like I saw it once, and I thought it was very good, but it didn't have like a huge impact on me. But then I've been reading so much about it and having it like kind of just stew in my mind a little. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm finding bits that I like. It's reminding me a lot of, uh, I don't know, I like slow movies. I like uh, Wong Kar Wai movies. I like Jim Jarmusch movies. And in many ways, it feels reminiscent of those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, so the first time I saw it, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I saw this movie at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And if you're not in New York, uh, you can just imagine, you know, your typical indie theater uh, but BAM, as we call it, uh, has a very particular audience, and the audience is usually very white and very Brooklyn-y, like Brooklyn hipster-ish. And seeing a movie like this with an audience like that and seeing everybody just actually empathize about this kid and what he's going through, it felt very different. I saw Precious there as well, you know, and I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are going to compare these movies. Um, You're the first person I've heard compare them, honestly. Really? I I keep hearing that a lot. And I think mainly from people who are judging it based on the trailer and maybe based on what they're hearing about it. Like, a lot of people, you know, don't want to see another movie about 
maybe black misery porn. And that's what they're assuming, even though that's not what it is at all. But you hear the premise, right? You hear the kid growing up in the projects um, with a crack addicted mother and just all the struggles he's growing through. I think a lot of people have classified it in that sort of category. And I I love that it's not. I love that the movie is completely opposite of that. And I think uh, the extended, like the word of mouth around this has really led to uh, it being such a success in the theaters for so long. Um, Yeah. mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I agree. It's, it's a, I think I was tweeting about this the other day, but it is, it is the kind of movie where you go in kind of expecting a certain tone or a certain narrative. Like you hear the premise and you're just like, Oh, okay. It's going to be just the world kicking this guy down for like two hours. Yeah. Um, You know, it's going to be precious. Yeah. Right. You're, yeah. You think like, OK, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be like really sad. And it is like, you know, it, it doesn't gloss over the fact that he has a lot of hardships in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very sad at times. It's you know, it gets very dark at times, but it's not ultimately like I wouldn't ultimately call it a sad movie. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel like misery porn. Like it kind of just you're kind of just living with this kid. Like it's a really intimate movie. So you feel the pain and suffering that he goes through. But you also feel kind of the joys that are in his life. You feel like, you know, his curiosity about things. You feel like the warmth that he gets from the connections that he make, has in his life. Uh, so, I mean, that was yeah. So that was that was one thing that I think was kind of surprising walking out of this movie. Um, and the other, but one thing I remember being struck by right away, even when I wasn't immediately as blown, o- blown away um, as I am right now, was the fact that, so since it takes place over three stages, the main character is played by three different actors. Right. And I, I cannot believe how well they are, they all managed to convince you that they're the same person like it, i was yeah, just like yeah. did did barry jenkins pull a boyhood when we weren't looking like how did he do that yeah they, i mean they don't necessarily look similar but they act very very similar all they carry the themselves yeah. similarly you can you can really see like i think it's a lot in the eyes like something yeah. about the way that they kind of look at people the way they watch people the way they like observe the world like you can really see like a through line between all three performances even though i mean they look similar enough that you're like okay but mm-hmm. they don't look like identical but it's just something about the way that they you know inhabit this role makes it so believable that this is all the same person yeah i I think what makes this movie truly uh, truly transcendent for me is a lot of those things right the performances across the board are incredibly strong all the three leads who play uh chiron especially the last uh the last act (sighs) that guy gets me oh yeah it's uh, oh there, there's a lot going on there, but I also love it when young kids and actual teenagers can act uh, very well too, because you don't see that enough in TV. Uh, but yeah, there's a great supporting cast too, Mahershala Ali. Oh my god, this is yes, this is his year for sure. Uh, but I've also I've loved this guy's forever, so I'm glad that he's kind of finally getting his due. Uh, I first noticed him uh, during the 4400, which was a sci-fi show on USA. I think from like a decade ago. Oh wow! Yeah, he was, and he was great there. Uh, but that's, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say I first noticed him not that long ago. I noticed <laughs> him in um, the Place Beyond the Pines, yes. where he has a supporting role as yeah. like Dane DeHaan's stepdad, or you know, whatever. In a very and very similar not, role to this too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like it's mm-hmm. not a big role, and it's like not one that was marketed heavily or anything. But I remember just like watching that movie and coming away with like, who is that guy? He <laughs> was amazing. And I remember when I interviewed the director, I even like brought up like that dude was amazing. <laughs> yeah, he has a great presence, and I think uh, that's carried over to pretty much all of his roles. I think most people probably know him from uh, House of Cards, where he's Remy Danton, and mm-hmm. great great character there. I've kind of given up on that show, but I love that he was in it. Well, I think now uh, yeah. most I think now a lot of people know him from Luke Cage. Yes, but he's also yeah. this year he was in Kicks, uh, I, which I haven't seen, but it's another indie movie. Mm-hmm. And then he's also in Hidden Figures, which also stars Janelle Monae, actually, yes. who's in Moonlight. So yeah, oh, yeah, he is having a hell of a year. I just saw Hidden Figures today, actually, and uh, yeah, they're both great. In it. It's a very different movie than Moonlight, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, totally his year. And uh, also early on, like. You think his name is a little confusing now. Early on, he was going by his full name. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Which is like uh, Mahershalal Hushbaz. And man, like, it, I wonder if it's even, if it correlates a little, if his career kind of took off after he started shortening his name. As somebody with a long and difficult to pronounce name, I feel his pain. And I don't know, <laughs> I think we're sort of seeing something there. But yeah, he's great. Janelle Monet is great in this. Uh, Naomi Harris 
who the stat people keep uh, t- talking about is that she was basically she only shot three days worth of work for her role in this movie, which is insane. Uh, yeah, it was but, apparently during the Spectre mm-hmm. junket or something, like during her press tour, like she just had like a. <laughs> Or so I don't know if during Spectre, Spectre or yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, during whatever Bond movie, she actually had to act at some point, but it wasn't for the Bond movie, I guess. Um, her character is probably the most, uh, I don't know, the p- most difficult one because it seems like the most cliched one, right? The mm-hmm. sort of like uh, the crack addicted mother who doesn't really care for their child. And we saw that in Precious. We see that in a lot of movies. And I think she handled it really well, um, especially as we go through the different stages of the film. So she was tremendous. But I also love, uh, you know, the, the several actors played Kevin, who is Chiron's uh, friend slash potential romantic interest. And of course, the last actor who plays him is Andre Holland, who is also doing a lot of great stuff these days. So, yeah, great cast. Yeah, mm-hmm. the performances across the board are just uniformly fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it's a quiet movie, too. Like the, the dialogue and the script and everything, I think, are great. But. I love movies that know how to linger in silence in a way. And that's very Wong Kar Wai of uh, this style, I guess. Uh, Our friends at the Next Picture Show podcast uh, compared it to In the Mood for Love. And I think that's a pretty good pairing because that's also a movie about uh, quiet and longing and, you know, a love that may never be. Although it's it's a bit of a different comparison, I guess. But stylistically, that's kind of there. Um were there any scenes that stood out for you, so, you know, without going into spoilers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like, I love the whole movie, but one scene that just kind of like, even now when I think of it, it just kind of makes me curl up inside <laughs> in a good way is uh, when in the third act, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, mm-hmm. but in the third act, when the two main characters kind of encounter each other for the first time, but then Chiron isn't really sure what's going to happen. So then right, you see right. all these really conflicting emotions across his face. Like you kind of see that he's trying to guard himself, but there's this like really just painful vulnerability that you also see. Like, it's just like, yeah, whenever, I, like even now, just mm-hmm. thinking about that, I just want to like, give myself a hug and like I, yeah. pick up my cat and cuddle with him it's just it 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 like breaks my heart in it but it's not really because it's sad it's just so um you know my friend uses this word a lot verklempt just overcome with emotion <laughs> that's how i feel when i um, see that but i mean one mm-hmm. of the things you you brought up kind of how it's a quiet movie and one thing i found really interesting about this movie is the main character is very quiet like Mm -hmm. he's just like not a talker he's like you know other characters in the movie kind of joke about how much he doesn't talk but so so then so much of this movie is spent like watching this person watch stuff like so much of this movie is just watching chiron look around at the world around him take in the world around him it's watching the way he like observes someone with like confusion or sadness Mm -hmm. or longing and, and the the three actors just do it. They do a great job of watching. Yeah, I think the movie does a good job of uh, basically making you empathize with this character really well. And it reminds me of that uh, post you wrote on Slash Film about how, yeah, we kind of need movies as like empathy machines a little, especially mm-hmm. in our current political climate because of he who will not be named. Um, but yeah, it, it does like looking around the audience, looking around the BAM audience, uh, and seeing people cry throughout the film uh, and seeing people really respond to it, uh, I, I, it was kind of heartening to me. So I love, you know, pop culture for that sort of role. Uh, some things we haven't really talked about yet. I think the uh, the actual, like, uh, I don't know, the mise-en-scene, the way the movie portrays life in Miami, it's really interesting mm-hmm. how it still is beautiful, despite not being in the best of circumstances, right? Like, this is a movie set around the projects and around not-so-great schools. Um, what I found fascinating was how Chiron and, uh, you know, Kevin as well, young Kevin, they can still find a bit of beauty in that. And that's something I think a lot of people may not be able to relate to as well. And also the exploration of sexuality among, you know, black male culture feels a little interesting, too, because you just don't see that as much. I'm thinking back to shows like uh, I Like Empire. Uh, My wife, Raquel, loves Empire. And one of the early plot points was how much um, uh, lead character, Lucius Lyon, forget the actor's Mm -hmm. name, uh, Terrence Howard. uh, One of the plot points was just how much he basically hated his son since he was a child. Like At one point, he takes the kid and he shoves him in a trash can 
because let's not forget Empire is a Lee Daniels show. Um, so he shoves <laughs> his child in a trash can because uh, the child had the gall to like wear high heels for fun or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that portrayal, like seeing the portrayal here in this movie, just feels so different and so personal too. Uh, it's based on a book, right? And look up it's based on a name. play. Okay. Based on a yeah. play by, oh, Terrell Alvin McCraney. And yes. I think it feels personal in both of those respects, too. Like, you can tell what he's putting into it and visually what Barry Jenkins is putting into it, too, because I've read enough interviews to know that he, you know, has had similar experiences in his life. They both also kind of grew up in the same area. They just didn't, you know, they didn't hang out. They weren't, like, peers or anything. But that was interesting as well. Um, but everything, the use of music in this movie feels oh. kind of strange as well. Like, it's... There's a scene where young boys are just playing football, and it's, it's it's some sort of classical piece. And it's probably one of the most beautiful things I've seen this year. And I think, yeah, this movie is a great example of how music and putting it together with different sorts of imagery, uh, I don't know, just evokes a very visceral response in us. Anything you want to mention before we get to the spoilers? Uh, well, you were talking about the music. I mm-hmm. love the soundtrack. Um, it's really just gorgeous to listen to, but it does also give the movie like a different vibe. Like it's a it's a soundtrack that's um, I don't you know I, this is I'm kind of out of my element here. I don't mm-hmm. speak very well about music or soundtracks, <laughs> um, but I guess it's just it, it's it sounds really classical. It's not classical music. It's you know it's new right. music, but it sound it has that kind of vibe to it, which I think does also lend this movie like a different sort of gravity. Um, and it's, it's also just really gorgeous to listen to. You hear, if you hear the soundtrack through, you hear a lot of the themes echo themselves over and over. Like um, the three different Chirons yeah. all have variations on the same theme, like just stuff like that. And it's something that I, it's a, it's a soundtrack I've been listening to over and over. And it always just makes the world feel like, I don't know. It, it, it just, it gets me. <laughs> it gets you. Uh, yeah, there's a great uh, Jadenia track uh, that plays towards the last act to Classic Man. Although I think it's like right. a slowed down version because I'm a... It's like some kind of remix. It's, yeah. not, it's not the regular version of the song, which I've heard a bunch it's of times. It's much faster, really the regular big. one. Yeah. This one is much slower and more like to the tempo of the movie. I wonder if they even did like a special mix just for the film. Uh, but this is a movie that opens with uh, the like... Uh, the soul song or the 70s song, uh, Every N-Word is a Star. And that's also a fun thing to watch in a theater, you know, in an indie theater filled with a mostly white audience. And just seeing, like, the, the movie is not fucking around, I guess, in terms of how it's presenting itself. Like, before you see any actors or any images, that's the first thing you're, hear, you're hearing as the title card comes up. And yeah. that's kind of interesting, too. Yeah. Because that's also the entire thesis of the film right there, right? Yeah, it is. And, uh, I mean... You know, you were talking about how that that song choice kind of throws a lot of people off. Uh, And you were also talking about movies as empathy machines. I feel like one thing that you hear a lot with movies that are not about straight white people, basically. So not about the kind of people that usually write film criticism is just like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's universal. I was able to relate to it. And I feel like Moonlight doesn't really... it's, It's not that I don't think people can empathize with him, but it doesn't really... It doesn't necessarily expect you to, like find your own experiences reflected in him so i thought that that was really interesting because there's nothing there's very little about my personal experience you know my personal life that i find in this movie but at the same time it's it does what movies do really well which is give me this opportunity to just be this person for two hours um so i thought that that, i I feel like it's a subtle distinction like you know between making a movie that's universal and making a movie that um, make that you know, invites you to empathize with an experience that's so different from your own. Right, right. Uh, but an important one. It, it, I feel like it's. I feel like it's a tricky line to walk, but it it does without without kind of being like that. Don't worry, we're all same inside. Like it does kind of you know. It, it it makes you feel connected to other people, I right, guess. Right. It's a very specific film, I think, in that way, right? Uh, but it's, yeah. even though it appeals to, I think, uh, you know, a very specific audience, uh, it is, it works in so many ways that anybody can get it. And I kind of appreciate that too, when art doesn't have to compromise itself. Exactly. Just so everyone, yes. yeah, can, everybody can absorb it. Uh, but let's move on to spoilers and also just, yeah, how damn heartbreaking this entire movie is. Starting with Act 1, um, which is the only act, I guess a spoiler warning, a extra spoiler warning, because if you haven't seen the movie yet, there's no point in listening to this. Uh, but the first act is the only one where uh, Juan Mahershala Ali's character 
is actually present. But the impact he makes in Chiron's life, I think, is kind of amazing, too. I'm thinking back to the scene where uh, the opening scene is great. Just love the camera angle they do there and to him talking with, like, his, like, uh, drag lackey on the street. But Mm -hmm. the image of him saving Chiron when he is, as he's known as little at this point in the movie, uh, but he is sort of like a Superman. He is just, like, breaking down a window to rescue this kid who's hiding in the dark. Uh, just great use of imagery. And I think the movie does that a lot, too. It does. And you you know, you were talking about how even though... One of the things that I was surprised by after I saw it the first time was, like... I was like, I, you know, I, I didn't realize... While I was watching the movie, and then you're, you're in the second act, and you realize that the character has died. Like, I was like, really? Yeah. People, like, people have been talking so much about a supporting role that I thought that he was going to be in a lot more of the movie, but right, he right. makes such a strong impression. And not only that, but that character, you know, even when he's not actually physically present on screen, he just kind of looms over the whole movie. Like, you know, even toward the end, you see that character reflected in the person that Chiron becomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. And that was another scene that I think really stood out for me and for a lot of people is there's a point in the first act when little and, uh, Juan have a conversation, like a really frank, uncomfortable conversation. Right, right. I think the very uh, last conversation, right? Yeah, I think it's. Is it? Is it the? Is it the actual very end of the first I think act? So. I think it That's is. That's how I remember, yeah. right? Because he asks Juan, um, because people have been calling him a faggot at school, and he's trying to figure out what that is. And and Juan gives, I think, the best response I've ever heard in a movie yes, to that but, question. Yeah. But before that, mm-hmm. like you kind of just felt like the entire theater kind of tense up and be yeah. like, "What is he going to say?" Because yeah. it's such a it's such a fucked question. Like, yeah. how do you yeah. answer that? And then on on top of that, I think that we've sort of been conditioned to think that like a guy like Juan would not necessarily have a good response to that like he seems like very like masculine like he seems very kind of like strong and manly in all the ways that we you know that we associate with being strong and manly Mm -hmm. so then you're just like oh fuck like what's he gonna (laughs) say and then and then you just kind of felt like everyone kind of (sighs) like when he gives the (laughs) perfect answer the perfect answer. And I also, like, I mean, at one point it seems like he's starting to veer into territory, which may get a little too complicated for Juan. And then he looks over at Janelle Monet's character and she just gives him, like, the head shake no nope. and kind of dives in bath. I love their relationship, <laughs> That always makes by the way. everyone laugh. Yeah. yeah. So perfect. I, I, I almost even wonder, like, what he was going to kind of lead into. Uh, I love their relationship, uh, Teresa and Juan's. Like, it's... It's so quiet in a way. I, the entire movie is quiet, but it's it's hard to describe even. Like, they have an understanding with each other, and even though Juan is this guy who is doing, you know, he's a drug dealer, uh, but he has a heart of gold, it's weird how that sort of, like, almost cliched idea is made real by Mahershala Ali. But their relationship, I, I love how it's just assumed and how they just, like, take in this kid and take care of him. Uh, even though, if you really think about it, like, uh, they just kidnapped this kid. Uh, <laughs> but I guess it's, uh, you know, for his for his betterment, at least in the I context mean, it kind of the movie. Of, it kind of makes sense. You're one, this, right. like, very small child is wandering around by himself. You can't just, like, be like, well, best of luck with, to you, kid, right, and, right. like, leave him. So and you probably it, can't, like, take him to the police either, because then the police are going to start asking him questions, and you don't want that Yeah, either. no, there's, there's no... I think that they... I think what they do makes sense, and then, of course, it works out really well for Sharon, because then they kind of become his, his friends. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like, you were talking about how he's, like, a drug dealer with a heart of gold, but one of the things I liked about it is that he does seem complicated. Like, he's mm-hmm. very he's very kind, like, he has... A, he he has like a nice side to him and all that, but we see from right off the bat that he can be very commanding. Uh, we can see that he has some of his own, like, like you know, especially toward the end of the first act, you see kind of his internal conflicts about like the job that he does and right. then the kind of man that he wants to be. Like, especially, I'm thinking it's like specifically of the scene where um, Little's mother confronts him because she's a she's a crack addict and she mm-hmm. just confronts him about like oh you think you're better than me but you're the one that's selling me the drugs and then it comes up again later in the conversation that he has with Chiron so uh, yeah it, it's it's wonderfully complicated it doesn't make you it doesn't argue that Juan is like some sort of saint or anything mm-hmm. it just 
paints this portrayal of like a really rich, complicated man with a really rich, complicated inner, inner life. So I really liked that. Yeah, life is complicated, people. Um, you know, I hear stories from, uh, I know a few folks who grew up in similar areas here in New York. And mm-hmm. what they, the thing you hear is that, yeah, the drug dealers are kind of your friends because they're part of your neighborhood. You see them, you know, every day. And right. as long as you're not like, you know, trying to scam them or something or actually doing business with them, they're just people who are kind right. of there and doing their job. That's a complicated thing to convey. And I'm impressed the movie kind of did that so well and even had the like it was able to have a conversation like that. I appreciated that. Hmm. Yeah. And so quickly, because, yeah, this isn't a super long movie. It's like it's mm-hmm. about two hours. <laughs> so they, they cram a lot into those two hours. Yeah, it's it works really quickly. Anything else you want to say about the first act? Um, not offhand. Let's but, move on to, yeah, the yeah. second act, Chiron, I think it's called. Yep. And, uh, yeah, this is the one where your heart probably will break the most. Um, because, yeah, <laughs> things things get a little crazy, right? So in the first act, we saw that the kids were picking on him uh, when the, he was known as little. Uh, they detected weakness in him, potentially, like, oh, no, homosexual tendencies in this kid. Which mm-hmm. is also, it's weird. I don't even know... What in a child, you know, would these other kids pick up on to kind of treat them that way? But then I think back to, like, my, you know, elementary and high school experience. And I guess there's, like, always somebody who everybody ends up picking up on uh, or picking on for some reason. I think uh, it's yeah. instinctual. Like, I don't think even the kids themselves necessarily, like, well, he does X, so he must be Y, and right. therefore he must do Z. It's just... But, yeah, I think anyone who's been a kid kind of remembers that there were some people that would get picked on not for immediately obvious reasons either it would just something about like kids can sense weakness man they're terrifying Mm -hmm. yeah and schools are it's it's a weird society it's just like terrifying it's tribal and uh, even if you're a good kid like there are kids who got picked on that sometimes i'd try to help them and lots of times i just didn't because that's not what you did as a kid you just didn't kind of get involved with that stuff so which you see a little bit in the second act because that's kind of what happens with kevin right um chiron's only friend only friend his age i should say Mm -hmm. from the first act and then you know so kevin comes back and they're 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 still they're still friends you don't get the feeling that they hang out all the time or anything but they they clearly are friendly and he seems to be the only friend the only person at school who's ever nice to this guy (laughs) um but yeah i mean do you want to talk about the plot or do you want me to just continue yeah no go for it Okay. I mean, yeah. So then, so, so now, now they're teenagers, they're in high school and they are still friends, but Chiron clearly has some pretty complicated thoughts about Kevin. And then, you know, that then, so then this is the scene that this is the act where you get kind of what in his, in some ways is kind of the high point of his life where him and Kevin uh, have a sexual connection. Mm -hmm. And then you also get the very lowest point of his life, which is what happens almost immediately afterward, which is that Kevin is goaded by the school bully into beating up Chiron. And it is just, oh, it, it's, it, as you said, this is the most heartbreaking act. It's so devastating. And it's because, and the, and it's because it comes so hot on the heels of like, you know, one of the, like one of the only instances in Chiron's entire life where he's found like romantic or sexual right. satisfaction. Right. Uh, or even like yeah. a friendship connection too. Like it's weird how that that scene on the beach, which was shot beautifully, and uh, yeah, just it's so evocative. Um, wh- what's funny is that we haven't seen him make any other friendships throughout you know the entire film. Like aside from Teresa and Juan, like there's nobody in his life. Uh, he tells you know he tells Kevin that he hates his mother at some point. There's the amazing line about him. I love the awareness of when Kevin kind of hints that he kind of wants to cry, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Chiron says something. Something about, like, crying so much he wants to, like, disappear into the ocean, I think. Something like that. I think Chiron says something about how he wants to cry all the time, and then Kevin says that, and then... And then Chiron kind of like picks up on it, and mm-hmm. then Kevin's like, no, I'm just just reflecting back what you said to me. But you, (laughs) you know, I think that... So Kevin kind of verbally defends himself but i think that they kind of come away with an understanding of this mutual thing that they share and it's yeah like that's another scene that's another moment where i think uh moonlight kind of goes not necessarily in the way that we've been conditioned to expect 
where like you like once again you're just like oh it's like you know it's 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 teenage boys they're they're very macho they're always picking on each other they are always you know gay bashing each other and stuff so then you're very very scared for what is or at least i was kind of nervous about what was going to happen to chiron when it became clear that something was going to happen between him and kevin on that beach but uh then the movie you know once again goes the other way and proves that and shows Kevin to be much more kind of thoughtful and complicated than you maybe would have taken him for, for sure. initially. I mean, right before that too, like the, the initial meeting between Kevin and Chiron, like Kevin's talking about like, uh, I think in a very like high school boy macho He's way. He's talking about how he was like fucking some yes, girl and he got detention stairwell. because he got caught by a teacher. <laughs> sure. Like, first of all, I totally believe that that actually happened. Um, there's so much, it, it feels kind of true to life in a way too, because I feel like a lot of us probably knew dudes like that who would really, I don't know, gloat about their exploits. And it turns out, like, maybe none of it was true. Uh, but right. they just say that for the sake of saying it. Um, also, I want to talk about the bully, which is kind of an interesting relationship, too. Because uh, it almost seems like uh, it's it's funny to see how he wields his power. And that also feels like something I've seen in high school and had to deal with in high school, though certainly not to this level. Uh, but he has a weird fixation on Chiron. He does. It yeah. almost reads as sexual at some point. I think it I'm does. not saying yeah. yeah. I'm not saying that it's necessarily like, oh, I'm not like coming over with like, oh, the homophobic bully was actually gay the whole time. Like that's right. not necessarily my read on it, but it is I think that Barry Jenkins does do a good job of showing just kind of how kind of how weird that fixation is like he's obsessed with Chiron to the point where he's like staring at him yeah he's like you know following him waiting for him well he's confronting this guy that just wants to be left alone yeah he's also like every time he like verbally threats Chiron it's always like some weirdly sexual like a little too a little too gay of a sexual threat which I also found kind of funny too so but that also kind of feels true to high yes, school. I mean, I yes. wasn't a guy, so I wasn't like bullied by other men as a man or, or as a man or anything. But it does. But you do remember people talking like that. You do remember mm-hmm. those kinds of like mean things that kids would say to each other. Yeah, my read on it though, like personally, I do think like that that bully had feelings at least towards Chiron or had some sort of weird curiosity about him. But he probably didn't have like the emotional capacity to even deal with it. And there's some I don't sort know. Of I don't know if there. it would. I don't know if necessarily that the bully like is you know wants to have sex with Sharon or anything but I think it's I think that you kind of see in him the way that uh like masculinity kind of will uh let's see it'll kind of police itself. Like, I think that it's not necessarily that he's like oh I want to sleep with Sharon and I'm upset about it it's that he sees in Sharon a guy that is breaking what he thinks the rules of masculinity should be so then without really like thinking through it in these kinds of steps or anything you know it's it's his instinct is to is to then lash out and attack him for not being for not being the guy that he's supposed to be it's you know and you see that kind of gender policing not just in moonlight not just with men like you see it all across society everywhere all the time and for sure you see I, i think you get the sense of how the society there is supporting the bully too more than it even supports, you know, Chiron. Like, he has no avenue of help outside of Teresa at this point. Uh, his mom is stealing his money, you know, just to keep getting high. Uh, there's a scene where um, it's it's the one... So, first of all, there's the insane scene after Chiron gets beat up where he goes in and just, like, wallops... Or, no, 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 no. The one where he gets beat up, right? And then he's at the principal's mm-hmm. office right after... And that scene struck me as kind of weird because she was yelling at him, you know, like she wasn't she wasn't even offering him support. Uh, she's basically saying, like, unless you press charges, right, nothing can be done uh, without even acknowledging, like, the the very, like, reasons why it would be smarter for him not to say anything. Uh, she may not know that, oh, she actually has feeling he actually has feelings for this kid. Uh, but there are a lot of other reasons why it wouldn't be smart to do something like that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that that scene kind of, like, you can kind of, it, I don't think that it makes her out to be a villain, but you can kind of see, like, because you can kind of see that she's frustrated, you can kind of understand why, right. because what is she really going to do if this kid doesn't want to press charge? Like, what, what else can she really do, right. I but, think? I mean, and, yeah, principals you know, can so then, punish kids who are involved in the fight. They can punish kids, You're but right. that kid is, like, in the hospital. Like, I mean, like, you right. know, well, I, I no, mean, no, I'm, no. Not I'm talking saying, about I'm talking about the one after one, uh, Chiron gets beat up. 
Not the one where he attacks the kid, right? Because we cut away. Oh, right, right. After right. That. No, I know. Like, I get that, but it's just like I, I think that she. I think that I don't think that she necessarily is just like, well, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want to punish Chiron for getting beat up. I think it's more just that, like, that she is kind of frustrated. At, like, she yeah. she feels a little bit like, well, you know, if you're not even gonna, and, and I think it. Sorry, I feel like I'm kind of not no, talking no, very well, but it's also just kind of like. She, you kind of get the sense that she's frustrated in a large part because she feels like Chiron isn't doing enough to stand up for himself exactly, and to advocate yeah. for himself. And I mean, you know, you, you look at it from her perspective. She's a principal with like all this stuff going on, like, and she doesn't, she she can't devote all of her time and energy to this one kid. So then it's just kind of frustrating where she's just like, well, if you're not even going to help yourself, like, what, like, what do you want me to do about it? And I don't think that it's the right approach and it definitely does kind of feed into what happens next but i don't but but yet again you know the movie is very sympathetic in that it kind of it doesn't doesn't make her out to be a villain or a bad person it makes her out to be someone who doesn't do the right thing who doesn't know failing chiron in a way like yeah like all of that this is also we should also point out that the second act is the low point of his relationship with his mom right right um, which is another important relationship that runs throughout the whole movie. For sure, right? In the first act, it was interesting that the mom, uh, she had nurse scrubs. It seemed like, you know, she had a decent job and she had a life. And then she was slowly, like, you know, teeting towards heavier and heavier addiction. The second act, she is just fully, fully in there. You know, she seems to have, like, sold a bunch of stuff in the house, uh, basically stealing money from her child. And, yeah not in a good place unfortunately no yeah insane but one of the things that does carry through is that through all of this like she does some you know she says hateful things to him she's mean to him like she's really nasty but you you do feel like on like i never i never felt like oh she hates him she just doesn't love him like i did feel the whole time like on some level she does care about him but for various reasons she you know it's it's complicated and imperfect she can't stop herself from doing all these terrible things. You know, you know, like it's it's not as simple as just, oh, she's a bad, neglectful mother. She's a bad person and she doesn't like her son. Mm-hmm. Like it's a lot it, like she I always kind of get the feeling that on some level she does care about him. She does love him, but she is not equipped to handle anything about this relationship with For him. Sure. Like I got, I got that sense, too, although it was interesting in the first act, it did seem like she was also like, uh. I don't know, like, in her own way, like, bullying him for being not masculine enough. You know, I kind of felt that, yeah. like, he couldn't escape the bullying he was facing at school, but he was facing it from his mother as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and you see that even more in the second act. Just, like, I don't know, all that being perpetuated. Uh, but, yeah, we'll come back to her in the last act. I just want to point to that final scene. So, after Chiron gets attacked, he just, like like a man on a mission just kind of goes through the school and just wallops the bully. And uh, he gets a second hit in too, which I found like just the pure rage in that moment was kind of insane. But then like the, the outcome of it is he is the one going to jail because of what happened because everybody saw what happened, I guess. And you know, the, the kid, the bully is unconscious and doesn't need to charge him because the teacher and everybody saw uh, but the also the unfairness of that situation too. Like, yeah, he did assault a kid, but this is also a guy who's been basically abusing him for who knows how long. Uh, that was insane. What a freaking act break! Yeah. And then now we're in Act Three. Now we're in Act Three. Black. Where yeah. we've been talking this whole time about how one of the reasons, one of the kind of things that's been plaguing Sharon and you know this whole time throughout his life is that he's not masculine enough in the way that other people expect him to be masculine so when you get to the third act it's kind of a shock to realize oh he's finally become that guy like he's you know when you first see him like suddenly he's like this like really scrawny meek looking kid has suddenly become really like jacked and he looks tough he looks like someone that like you know you would not want to fight this guy you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah so yeah. it's 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 initially such a shock and this was the one where when we got to this actor i was like oh i guess they couldn't find someone that really resembled the other two actors okay but then as the as you move through the third act you see kind of more and more layers of that tough exterior kind of falling away and then you see more and more of the chiron that you recognize from the first two acts come through and uh, you understand kind of how much of it is a performance mm-hmm. It's all a performance. Like, he's still clearly trying to figure out who he is. 
And yeah. that was I mean, that was the story of the entire movie up until then. But I think at some point in adulthood, uh, after going through jail and going through all of that, like he decided, OK, everybody thinks I'm soft. I'm going to become, you know, as hard as possible. I'm going to become the tough guy. Uh, it is insane to see like the smallest kid in that class become this big buff dude, you know, with gold grills and like tattoos and huge muscles. It's that was a crazy shock. And I also wonder if it's uh, I, I almost wonder if it's like even too much of a shock to like really make that point visually of what uh, they're trying to say about his psyche or his mental state. But I just kind of love it, too. Like I was shocked it originally. And then you see Trevante Rhodes do his thing. Yes. It's 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 funny too cuz like it starts with the situation of him talking to one of his uh his employees and just like kind of giving him shit over potentially miscounting a deal and trying to like exude toughness and really making this younger person's life hell. And then he gets the phone call from Kevin and just like the look in his eyes and the way things change immediately. <sighs> my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that is I mean, a lifetime of regret right there in 5 yes. seconds. Yes. I mean, I agree with you that it's really jarring. And the thing is, the thing is, like, as an adult, one thing I realize is that people don't change as much throughout their lives as the movies would suggest. Right. So I agree that it is kind of just like at first it's almost unbelievable. But uh, but I think it works because you pretty quickly kind of understand why he's like that and where Mm -hmm. it happened. And as you pointed out, Trevante Rhodes does so much of the heavy lifting in making you understand uh, that it's the same person. Um, it's also kind of an it, it's also kind of interesting because he's sort of in a lot of ways become his role model. Juan, you know, he's a drug like Juan when mm-hmm. he first met him with it was like this tough drug dealer that was bossing other people around, and other people were kind of you know like not not like running in fear, or scared, but <laughs> they were intimidated by him. And then you see kind of that he has now become Juan in right. a lot the of same ways. Car, I think, and the same like hood ornament or some one of the ornaments was like the same. So like clearly he's modeled himself after his like the most influential male role model in his life. Yes. And it's mm-hmm. another way that we were talking about how Juan disappears very quickly from the movie, but you kind of like he echoes throughout the movie. You're ne- you never really escape him despite the fact that you don't see Mahershal Ali after like a third of the way into the movie. Yeah. By the way, that's uh that was one thing that I really wonder it was kind of funny how the movie just kind of dealt with Juan, like his story and just like uh, Teresa at some point mentioning that he's not there anymore. I forget how it was kind of revealed, but that's, I don't know, that is such a brave way to deal with such a big influential character. I can't think of the last time a movie just kind of did that, you know? And so, in a way that mm-hmm. didn't feel like a cheat, too. Yeah, right. right. But uh, yeah, but anyway, uh, so older Chiron, now drug dealer, you know, now... Sorry, let me... There's a big truck going by my house. Okay. Uh, older Chiron, now drug dealer, now like, you know, just living a good life, gets that call from Kevin. And it's funny how just everything changes immediately. I almost wish, like, we got a little more with old Chiron in his element. Um, because, like, the shift is so dramatic. I Yeah, I wanted to see, like, how else he was maybe dealing with you know the ghosts of his past or something but yeah pretty quickly he gets the call from kevin he visits his mother and then um that by the way what a conversation that is because Mm -hmm. yeah the last time we saw uh naomi harris's character she was you know at her lowest point i think and in the last act she is recovered she's trying to help other people and i think also aware of like all the damage she did to uh as well and just yes. also seeing somebody deal with that guilt, too. This is a movie all about regret and guilt, which I kind of love as uh, narrative things. Uh, I think back to some of the, you know, some of the, like, classic books I love very much, like Ethan Frome or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm very much in that. But uh, any any thoughts on, like, her role or that particular scene? Um, so before he goes and visits her, and before mm-hmm. he even gets a call from Kevin, he actually gets a call from his mom... Yeah, uh, asking yeah. him to visit and it's it, and like that's where you start to see the tough facade kind of break down when you first hear him talk to his mom and then it breaks down more completely once he gets the call from kevin and uh yeah that last scene together is <laughs> or him and naomi harris's last scene together is just so it's so powerful and i think that i think it does kind of carry on what we saw in the first two acts and what i was talking about before where you do kind of see that in her ways, she has loved him always. And she, it's not that she didn't want to be a good mother, but you kind of see like, you know, she 
knows she fucked up really bad. Like, yeah. you see, like, so much regret on her side, but also just on his side of, like, you kind of see that, that on some level he's kind of like, why couldn't you be this person uh, when I needed that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's 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 already pretty devastating. Um, but, it, you know, but kind of happy, too, because it's it's nice to see that they've sort of moved on. It's nice to see that they still have a connection. It's nice to see that she's found some measure of peace. And even though their relationship is never going to be great like right. it's clearly started to kind of mend itself into something better mm-hmm. but then after that like so then that's just like a stop that he makes on his way to the diner where he's <laughs> gonna meet up with kevin who is now a cook played by andre holland he's now yeah andre holland um he's a very different looking kevin but i love andre holland right have you seen any of the nick I have not. For, I think uh, you will love that show for many reasons. Uh, but yeah, he is he was tremendous there. He's been in a bunch of things lately and I love he's He one was of those an guys. American horror story. Yes, I have been watching that. So <laughs> Um But yeah. yeah, then he then he he gets the call from Kevin and just immediately is just like, I'm going to drive like so many hours to see this person. Like not even considering like how he would justify the story. Like he has no way of like really explaining it other than like oh literally kevin is like what are you doing in town and he's just like uh yeah uh like somehow on the several hours that he was coming over it just never even occurred to him (laughs) to like come up with a reason why he's in town and i love this response to that yeah this is the scene that i was talking about because then he goes to the diner that like Early early on in this podcast, he said, like, was there a scene that stood out? And this is the one that always gets me, even just when I'm thinking about it, is that... So then, you know, Sharon gets to the diner, and Kevin is working, so it takes him, like, a it takes him like a few minutes to kind of, like, see him and recognize him. And then you kind of see that, like, when they first recognize each other, and you see... You see... Sharon kind of like you know he's he's hopeful he's worried about getting his hopes up too high he's like so you know he's he's so happy to see him but he's also scared like it's just all these really conflicting emotions but and all of it is just like Trevante Rhodes face in the scene is just so perfect it's so open but in a way where you can tell the character is trying to keep it in it's a it's like it just I cringe watching it in such a good way because it just reminds you of all the times in your life where like you've kind of have had that feeling of like you you want something so bad but you don't know if you're gonna get it you don't know you know you don't want the other person to see how much you want it like you know that kind of thing like it's it's so oh god just again thinking about it now it just always gets me like that scene made me want to cry not because it's the saddest scene in the movie but just because it's just so like his vulnerability in that moment and Rhodes' performance in that moment is just so, it speaks volumes. I was astounded by that. There's one. a lot going on without any words. It's just his face yes. and watching his eyes, and that's astonishing. And then I and love, you're not, and you're mm-hmm. not even sure for a while. And like Sharon, you're actually not sure for a while what Kevin wants or what right, Kevin right. thinks is going to happen. Yeah, for sure. And I love uh, Andre Holland's performance there too because he's just kind of bemused at first, and I think. During early on in that conversation, he kind of gets the deeper meaning of, like, why he's there. Like, mm-hmm. maybe, like, he can almost feel, like, the connection, like, hearkening all the way back to their time on the beach, even though that was, like, one time, who knows, like, ten or more years before. Uh, that connection between two people I kind of loved as well. Um, but Andre Holland, sitting him down and making him his chef special, I've kind of loved that as well, too. Like, there is, there's a lot of focus on imagery of food in this movie as, like... That's being the ultimate way you can really take care of somebody and show love for somebody. Because um, mm-hmm. you see that immediately, like when Chiron meets Juan, kind of the first thing um, Juan does is like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to take you to get some food. Like that was the yeah. thing that got him to respond. And he still didn't talk, but that kid wolfed down, you know, everything he put in front of him. Then he brought him home and Teresa made him food. And then you see him at home. And his mom's not there, and he has to, like, make... Uh, I forget what he was making, but some like some very simple thing he had to just deal with on his own uh, because that was the only... He had to take care of himself. His mother was not capable of doing that for him. So I love, like, we come all the way back to that imagery and uh, Kevin prepares, you know, a very, like, Cuban-looking dish and then Cuban hearkening back to Juan, who was Cuban. I love how this movie is both subtle and also very, very, like, blatant about its imagery like because he like he is serving him the comfort of Juan in a very visual mm. way 
Uh, mm-hmm. So I kind of love that. The chef special, not anything that special. You go to Miami, like, you will get that meal in every single goddamn deli or, you know, uh, cafe or something. Uh, but, but he makes it so, so tender. He, like, sprinkles yeah. cilantro on it. And it's just, like, like the way – that was one of the things that I loved about it is that you know this is just, like, some cheap, shitty right, diner. Right. You know it's not, like, a Michelin five-star restaurant. But then you see Kevin go into the kitchen and prepare this food. And it's made with so much care right. and so much, like – that it that it does feel like you're watching like a master chef create something incredible, even though as you point out, it's it's like regular food. <laughs> it's, like it's the way rice he just and like, chicken, but it's great. Yeah. Yes, but then as you said, it's a way that you kind of it's it's the the food in that moment kind of expresses their relationship because it's yeah, it's like him caring for him. It's him kind of like carefully reaching out to Sharon because throughout their lives, like the their personalities stay pretty consistent throughout mm-hmm. their lives. So you do see kind of in Kevin in the third act, the same kid that like in the first act was chasing after Chiron to like talk to him and to befriend him and to like, you know, try to help him. So mm-hmm. yeah, you, you continue to see that another, this is a little bit off topic now, but another image that I kind of noticed recurred throughout the image is that you spend a lot of this movie watching Chiron sleeping. That's true. Yeah. 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 Like, and, and a lot of the movie is kind of concerned about like, you know, uh, where he's sleeping like one of the first things that happens in the movie is that he kind of insists on sleeping with uh, like at Juan and Teresa's right. house instead of going home so then you know I feel like it to me that kind of just speaks to again his vulnerability like you're mm-hmm. never more mm-hmm. vulnerable than when you're sleeping um, it's a really intimate moment like it's not something that you see even your closest friends do like just have a good night's sleep <laughs> so then you it, I think it really just helps you feel like you're there with him with like nothing mm-hmm. between you that's a good point and it, it reminds me of like uh I don't know, the hierarchy of needs right it's all about food and shelter are kind of mm-hmm. like the base things right you cannot be fully satisfied or fulfilled in your life unless you have these basic things taken care of and uh Chiron on his own as a child had neither like he had none of that uh, none mm-hmm. of the things he needed to like live a fulfilled life and yeah, we see him gathering little bits of it throughout the end, you know, throughout the film. And then, yeah, at the end, we kind of have him in that situation, kind of recreating Juan's situation. Uh, but he's, he thinks he is happy in a way until he gets that call from Kevin. Uh, I love the dinner scene uh, where they were, um, there's wine. Kevin brings out wine and they just drink it from plastic cups. Uh, but it also seems like that is so special. You know, it's so special for him to even bring out wine to drink with a dinner like that, or maybe even in a diner like that. I'm like gonna cry yeah. just like thinking about <laughs> this entire act. The little, it's I'm, the like, little thing. Like, yeah, but, but, yeah, you're so right. But I, feel, I think so much of the movie is about what is special about things that don't appear special at first. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. we talked in, we talked about how even the movie itself, when you just hear the basic premise, you kind of think, oh, okay, so I guess I know what kind of movie it's going to be. <laughs> and when you meet the characters, a lot of times you come in with preconceived notions about, well, I guess this is that character. I guess this is what they're going to do. Um, but yeah, it's so special. It's so specific. It finds really just like moments of incredible joy or incredible sadness or incredible beauty in mm-hmm. really ordinary uh, scenes. Like, yeah. And the wine, I think, is a good example. Like, as you said, it's just it, they're drinking cheap wine out of plastic cups. But it does. It feels like right. it feels like a big event for them. It feels really special to them. It's what it means um, to both the characters. For yeah, sure. For sure. And th- there really isn't much left to the movie. Like, right? Right after that, uh, he gives Kevin a ride home. And this is after Kevin revealed that, you know, he had a wife. He has a child. Oh, God. Yeah. Sharon's face. Yep. When Kevin yep. mentions that he had had uh, <laughs> that he had had a child with a woman is, like, it falls. Yeah. Not in a way where I think it's exaggerated. But, you like, you know, by this point, you spent so much time with Sharon that you can kind of read him. And you kind of see it fall ever so subtly. Mm-hmm. Where you can tell on some level he's devastated, but he's not like showing it. He's not making a big show of it, but you know that he is. That ideal image he had of Kevin in his life for so long is like, yeah, perhaps shattered a little. Uh, But then what's what's even sadder, I think, is by the time they get to Kevin's house and Chiron's like, he he's never had sex with anyone, not just a man, but like anyone. He is he is a guy who is so. I don't know, emotionally like disconnected from everyone or incapable of having those bonds. But that night with Kevin's kind of all he had. Um, I basically had to work really hard from losing it in the, in the theater at that moment, because that's like, 
that's the sort of thing that gets me as well. You know, the pure like loss and regret of that moment. And yeah, astounding acting, astounding scene too. I can't remember the last time I've seen a character that you initially think is tough be so damn vulnerable. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. That's kind of what's powerful about it. I thought that it was sad, but on the other hand, I feel like you and I disagreed a little mm-hmm. bit about this on Twitter, where I said that in the end, Sharon basically turns out fine. Right, like, you, right, like right. I thought that this movie was going to end up end with him horrible things happening to him, but I think he basically turns out fine. I do think that that is it's obviously a tragedy. It's obviously something that he himself is not very thrilled about. But on the other hand, it ends with uh, you know, like lots of people get to their twenties and thirties without having had sex. It's not it's unusual, but it's not completely unheard of. Um, so you know, and he's clearly he's clearly like there are other things going on in his life. So you kind of just feel like it's not necessarily that he sits there every day thinking, I'm so sad that I don't have the touch of someone who loves me. It's just kind of become not a part of his life. But in the end, I mean, he's still a young ish man. He's reconciled with the one man that he ever really cared about. You don't necessarily know what happens to them, whether they, you know, the movie cuts out before it really gives you any definitive answer to, well, are they going to then become like a romantic couple? Uh, But you do kind of see that, that, that whole encounter, regardless of kind of regardless of what happens next, has started to to heal him, to help him move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, it's opened up a new part of his life that he had shut off a really long time ago. So I think that even though it's you know the ending is not like and then everyone was happily ever after, right, right. and there's still a lot of things in his life that are sad or wrong. But I think that it ultimately ends on a note that is hopeful, that makes you kind of you know want and mm-hmm. expect and hope for good things to happen too. Hope is is the key word there. I found it tremendously hopeful. And those are the sorts of endings I love. Yeah. Uh, Better, more so than the ones that are just like extreme tragedy, leaving you to like pick up the pieces or something. Uh, But yeah, I guess the reason I disagreed a little with you there, your comment was that uh, in both Moonlight and uh, what was it? American, American honey, American honey, right? Yeah. Both of those characters like kind of, I guess slight spoilers for that, but both of those characters end up okay. Despite, you know, a lot of things getting in the way that could have. Well, basically that, what know. I had said was that one thing that I liked about both movies is that they are movies about the kind of people that you think will not turn out. Okay. That we are used to seeing having, you know, being kicked down in movies, having tragedy happen to them. Like when you have a character like those two main characters, it's usually a signal that, Oh, you know, buckle in, this is going to be misery porn. <laughs> You're going to watch horrible things happen for the next two hours to these people. Right. Um, you know, which is which is kind of fucked when you think about it. Because, no, no, definitely. Yeah. So then, it, so then it is kind of refreshing. Just so then, I did find it kind of refreshing to see a movie where, yeah, bad things happen to these people, but they <laughs> ultimately turn out fine. They don't end up dead. They don't end up like in a place of like sure, hopelessness. Sure. Like I. Yeah, I, I so guess we I have def- different definitions of fine <laughs> in a way. I, I do think American Honey, I can't wait to rewatch that. And I'm not going to say too much about that. But I think that the character in that movie ends up fine in a much more, uh, I don't know, in a much more obvious way than Chiron does, right? Because he, he, okay, he's successful. He's out of jail. He has a business. He has a life. But he is so emotionally, like closed off like yeah a lot but of you're people you're seeing the beginnings mm-hmm. of him kind right. of moving on from sure, that sure sure like at the very end that's what makes it all better but i think that for most of that situation and then i think back to like the life this kid lived up until that point like that mm-hmm. is that to me is it's it's definitely tragic it feels classically tragic you know because he survives by becoming you know someone who he isn't so i guess that's the only thing like, a I lot of say us <laughs> I don't know. I try to be true to myself, Angie. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think that everyone at some point in their right. life has done a little bit of trying to be something that they're not yes, in order yes. to survive. So, I mean, but yeah, the, I mean, not, situations... not to say that my life is as extreme <laughs> as Sharon's by any means. Well, you were you, you were but... a freelancer for a while and we know how, uh, yeah, you can't trust those freelancers, right? So that was a dirty <laughs> existence. But uh, the Chiron as like becoming a drug dealer rather than you know actually having you know a trade or something that wasn't illegal and dangerous for him uh you know that couldn't put him back into trouble immediately or something like that's i think that i would say he was he'd be okay in that situation if he was just like living a very different life um but yeah i felt for the character and kind of where he was in that situation 
So, but yeah, that's, I think it's, it's more of a semantic argument than anything else. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to mention about the film? Because uh, I, I initially thought we'd only go for like half an hour, but it turns out this is a very good movie and uh, we can talk for a while about good movies. <laughs> um, I would add that it's gorgeously shot. Mm-hmm. The colors in this are really rich. They're really beautiful. Uh, yeah. I guess that's that's something we didn't talk that much about, so I just want to throw that in there. Right. But otherwise, yeah, everything about this movie comes together so well. It's such a unique and uh, haunting experience. I yeah, now I want to watch it again, like right now. And I'll, I, yeah. it's a movie I can. It's a movie that like weirdly I can imagine myself watching over and over, mm-hmm. which is not usually how I feel about two-hour movies that can be described as slow character pieces for sure for sure have you uh, seen barry jenkins other movie medicine for melancholy yes but like a long time ago okay yeah i remember that was a thing that was like what 2008 2009 and it was it got a lot of praise back then but it was something i never got around to seeing but after seeing this movie and also after spending a lot of time in san francisco where that movie is based i i'm really eager to check that out and i think that's easily streamable inaccessible now too so that's that's my next mission after watching moonlight again at some point um but yeah let's wrap it up angie uh where can people find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at ajhan i write for slashfilm.com and i also have a podcast with christy pachko and perry nemiroff where we talk about movies um and you can find that at popcornprosecco.com very cool and uh yeah you can find me at at davindra on twitter and uh, i write about tech engadget.com we're also doing a tech podcast there, so check that out. And as always, you can find you know more episodes of the Slash Filmcast at SlashFilm.com or in your favorite uh, podcast program. And leave us a review if you like what we're doing. Thanks for joining us, Angie. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun.